0: Roughly, you know. All right, Ephesians chapters one to three. Uh, we're going to be mostly in chapter three. It'll be page 977 in your pew Bible if that's what you happen to be using. In those first three chapters, we have seen we're closing in on the end of it. Uh, in those first three chapters, they are primarily devoted to doctrine, teaching, indicative, uh, indicative mood in the Greek. That is, he's not telling you to do anything. He's just telling you what it is. This is what is true. Like it or not, believe it or not, these things are true. Chapters four to six, he will then tell you what to do because of what is true. What God said in chapters, those first three chapters, now here's what you do with it in the last three chapters. So it's about doctrine. It's about what God has done. It's about God's grace. It's about Gentiles. Paul's writing to Gentile churches, and that's in some sense, that's the big surprise of, of this letter, as would be true of all of Paul's letters. He's writing to Gentiles. Maybe not entirely true, I suppose. Timothy would have been at least half Jewish. I think Titus was Jewish. So. But for the most part, he's writing to Gentiles. So, we're going to learn, especially in today's lesson, we're going to learn something about prayer uh, which is why the book is on the back foyer counter, which I'll explain still later. Prayer is something that probably, if you were a Christian, I would hope, you have made some effort or endeavor to pray, and you have, if you're like me, you have found it either satisfying or on occasions uh, successful, and other times more of a struggle, uh, more of I'm not sure what, what I'm how this is supposed to be accomplished, or how I'm supposed to feel after the fact. I'm not exactly sure what it looks like. Prayer is not my strong point, but I can say the longer I've lived, the more I realize how necessary it is. Uh, A lack of prayer, I remember reading an article in Discipleship Journal a good number of years ago that said the main reason why a Christian wouldn't pray is because of their pride because they think they can do it on their own. Uh, I oftentimes think I can manage on my own, and so prayer doesn't seem like the best use of my time. The longer I've lived, the more I'm convinced that could that is far from the truth. So we're going to learn something about prayer. I'm going to start with a quote by James Montgomery Boyce, who passed away in 2000. I think he was only 62 when he passed away. He'll show up on there in a minute. But James Montgomery Boyce pastor, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. What a gift of Christ to the church. A wonderful individual, wrote some wonderful works, headed up some wonderful ministries, and was wholly committed to keeping the church on course with what God said was true in his word. So regarding some of the questions we have about prayer, he writes this. Our prayers do not get God to change his mind, of course. They would be dangerous if they could. I added the word disastrous. It would not only be dangerous, it would be disastrous if our prayers changed God's course. But it is striking that these or any other questions do not seem to have deterred the biblical writers from praying. On the contrary, the more aware they were of God's sovereignty or God's will, the more fervently they petitioned him. And you need no further example than Jesus himself on the earth. Jesus was nobody knew the will of his father like Jesus knew the will of his father, and that all was being accomplished according to his perfect plan and And yet Jesus was wholly committed to prayer. He didn't resign himself to, well, whatever my father's going to do, he's going to do, and what's the point of praying he He made it his habit to pray. The Gospels tell us that, though it doesn't give us a daily prayer journal. He made it his habit to pray. So that's the quote we'll start off with. Now in uh, chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul prays for the Gentile church. He starts off, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And you wouldn't be wrong if you said, if, if you'd read as a refresher, the last three chapters this week, and you said, it seems to me that in those first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is always wanting to pray. There isn't a lot of praying going on in those first three chapters because Paul gets sidetracked, or if you want to say he goes down a rabbit trail, he does. But there are at least two prayers. The first one came in chapter 1. We'll briefly allude to it in a moment. And now the second one comes in chapter 3, but they're not really sidetracks, they're not really rabbit trails, because he is writing the Ephesians, the Gentile churches, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is by design, but uh, one of the reasons that prompted Paul to write the letter in the first place is he wants to pray for the church, But he can't just pray for the church without context. He keeps backing up and saying, but you need to know what God has done, and that's why I'm praying the way I'm praying. And so there's a a fundamental connection between knowing what God has done and the results into what you pray. If you don't know what God has done, the doctrine part, you will pray for lesser reasons And it will be less satisfying. And it will be less reflective of what prayer is meant to reflect. The relationship would look something like this. Our prayer is meant to be fueled by God's word. It's meant to be fueled by what God has done. By by the apostles' teaching. By what God has revealed. So that if I'm not spending time in his word, invariably... I'm going to have a hard time praying, or if I think I'm doing a good job praying, I'm probably not. Because prayer is meant to be fueled by what God has revealed. Prayer is best shaped and guided, and then voiced by what God has already said, what God has already done, what God has already revealed. There's a necessary connection. Understanding what God has said, what God has revealed, what God has done Now I pray. Now I pray. Paul's prayers are not lengthy prayers. Uh, The two prayers that are recorded in those first three chapters of Ephesians, they're not lengthy prayers. And I'm not going to read the entire quote in the bulletin, but I want to read the first uh, third of it just because I'm afraid if you don't, you'll miss it. Some people don't read the bulletin that I labor over. The better part of Tuesday. But at any rate... The quote in the bulletin from an English Puritan reads this way, and I had to clean it up a little bit because the Puritans sometimes use language uh, that is particularly difficult to understand. So I, I modernized it just enough. I think I kept the spirit of it. He writes, It is not convenient for ministers to be long in prayer usually, except upon extraordinary occasions sometime." Remember that one may more easily continue praying with devotion than others may continue hearing in silence, giving religious assent with good attention. Half hour prayers are too tedious and common with some men, which is their indiscretion, wearisome to all, liked of none. Well, Paul, when he prays, he does not weary us with his prayers. He, they are actually very short and very to the point. So, on the back foyer counter, there is a book. There's 40 copies of it. So, if uh, I don't want one, you know, if you got a big family, kind of spread the love around. We'll see. I, I need 40 copies to last, but these are available on the back foyer counter. Praying the Bible. This follows the model quite nicely of prayer is born out of God's Word. And if you're not sure what that looks like, it is an easy read. The print's large, the chapters are short, uh, and it does a really nice job of learning to pray what God has already done, said, and revealed. Those are available on the counter. All right. Another quote by John Stott said, It is in Scripture that God discloses His will, and it is in prayer that we ask Him to do it. When you understand, you know, Daniel prayed to a certain end of the book of Daniel because he knew what the Lord had promised about Israel's or Judah's exile coming to an end after 70 years. So he didn't say, well, God said it's going to be over after 70 years anyway. Why pray? It's because he knew what God had revealed by the prophets that Daniel said, that's why I'm going to pray because God has already told me what he's going to do. God has revealed so much of his plan yet in the future still We're promised Christ is coming back in power and glory. That's a reason to pray. Follow Paul's progression of prayer. Or follow the progression of Paul's prayer. In Ephesians, those first three chapters, it looks like this. Chapter 1, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers. He's writing to Gentiles. He's heard about their faith. Uh, he understands their love toward all the saints. And for those reasons, or born out of that, he prays. What follows then, in verses 17 to 23, are Paul, is Paul praying on behalf of those believers, and he's primarily pr- praying for their enlightenment that they would understand their knowledge of God and what God has done. It's basically an awakening of the mind that you would understand what God is doing, what God has done. That's Paul's first prayer in the first chapter. Then in chapter 3, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and he wants to pray a second time, but again, he backs up to, but I've got to talk about what God is doing. What God has done. What God has revealed. And he backs up, and then he restarts again in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he goes into his second prayer. We all have reasons to pray. If your reason isn't born out of Scripture, it's not the best reason. If your reason isn't born out of Scripture, you will probably labor or search it could go one of two ways. It'll either be cut very short or you will labor looking for a good reason to pray when the reason is meant to come out of what God has revealed, what God has shown us in Scripture. So Paul has his own reasons to pray. It looks something like this and it's, it's really derived or identified by what he's written in those first three chapters of Ephesians. He keeps wanting to pray. He's given us... Two very short prayers for the Gentiles, and those, those prayers are couched in all that doctrine in those first three chapters of what God is doing. And if I, I would summarize it by these two main emphases in the three chapters. Number one, God performs a mighty work of salvation in Christ, and that includes Gentiles. And because it includes Gentiles and it's God's mighty work and it's all about what He's done in Christ, Paul prays. He prays they would understand that, that their minds would be enlightened, that that would really hit home with them and they wouldn't take it for granted. Don't think that you're special in and of yourselves, that you had this coming, that this wasn't a mighty work of God's grace. That could not be true. You were completely darkened, estranged, not near to what God was doing, and he brought you in, and he made you alive. So that's one emphasis. The second emphasis is then Christ creates one new man in himself and reconciles both Jews and Gentiles in one body to God, the church. And that is very, if you boil it down to just a couple verses, that would be in chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16, which read this way. By abolishing the law of commandments, Christ abolished the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, God has done something in Christ for Gentiles, then Christ does something for Jews and Gentiles and directs it back to God, back to his Father. And for those reasons, you put all that together, and as you think about that and meditate on that and the significance of that, Paul has a reason to pray. Paul has a reason to pray, and so he does. That prayer is in verses 14 to 19 of chapter 3, it reads like this. Starting from the beginning. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer, and then he ends the cha- what we know is chapter 3 with a certain doxology. So it'll take us at least two weeks to get through the prayer, maybe three, but that's not entirely bad, because next week is uh, the second Advent candle. The first one is the hope candle. The second one is the love candle. And Paul says some wonderful things about love in that prayer, which is timed very nicely for Advent week number two and love. He starts off, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. When you bow your knees in prayer, it shows a certain, in Scripture, it's it's associated with a certain intensity and humility and urgentness to bow your knees. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was crucified, he went into the garden, and on his knees, he's pleading to his Father in heaven, that if it be your will, let this cup pass. But if not, because nevertheless, it's not my will, but your will be done. But he was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. King Solomon, who, on on one by one standard, the standard of the Old Testament kings was David, because all kings are judged by the heart that David had for his lord. But by the if you want to judge simply by the, a standard of success and notoriety, Solomon would be Israel's greatest king. He built a temple that took him years to accomplish. He made Israel known among all the nations that were certainly what we would call the known world or the Mediterranean world at that time. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, there was a point where he dropped to his knees and he prayed to God in heaven. Because that temple means nothing if God isn't in it. It doesn't mean people aren't going to lob the temple. It's not going to be on everybody's bucket list. And things to do and one of the wonders of the world but Solomon knew that if God isn't in it it's just an empty building that flashes a lot of gold so he's on his knees in prayer as Paul is on behalf of the church he bows his knees before the Father but the Bible also talks about people standing to pray Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and spoke to his father as he called out Lazarus from the grave. But he was standing when he prayed. In fact, it's most, I think really all Bible commentators that have commented on it would say that the most standard way that a Jew would have prayed is standing. If you think of the Western Wall, Americans sometimes call it the Wailing Wall, but in Israel it's the Western Wall wall. associated with the second temple, they're standing to pray at the western wall. They're not typically on their knees. They're standing to pray. In the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, there's, Jesus tells the story, or a parable, I suppose, of, of two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. One was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood thus by himself and prayed and thank God he wasn't like the bunch of you or me. And then the tax collector stood afar off and beat his breast. But he stood. He stood when he prayed. So what does that teach us about prayer? What it teaches us is that we ought to pray. What it doesn't teach us is that the posture is of deep concern to God. God is more concerned about the posture of my heart than he is the posture of my body. And there may be a time in a season where you want to fall on your face or on your knees and implore God because of the urgency of the situation. Or it may be you stand and lift your your hands in praise and thanksgiving as you pray. Or you plead to God with your arms outstretched. But body posture is not prescribed in scripture. What is prescribed is that God's people would pray. He says that he bows his knees before the Father. Father is a ter- term of endearment. It's a, a, a familiar term. It's a, a loving term. Uh, in that Paul addresses God as Father and not just as sovereign ruler. But it would be a mistake to think that that's all that is captured by the word Father. Because while it is a term of endearment and a term that speaks of closeness, Father also, especially in Middle Eastern culture, which would certainly include Israel's culture, it's a term of authority and right and prerogative to lead and guide and to put yourself under your father and to respect and honor his wishes and carry out his course for the family. It's all of that when Paul prays to father, not just, oh, we're in good terms, I can get what I want. It's recognizing his leadership within the context of the group. And so, Paul, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He then makes certain requests on behalf of the Gentiles, and commentators are very much divided as to how many requests there are. Some say as few as three. Some say as many as six. To some extent, it really doesn't matter whether a request kind of is multifaceted or whether it's meant to be taken separately. The prayer is what it is. But there is some division exactly how you ought to divide up or outline the prayer that is found. A good number of Bible commentators liken it to a staircase that uh, as you move from one request to the next, you keep moving up to a higher plane, a higher elevation. Uh, God granting one request leads to the next the next thing up as you as as God has worked that grace into your life, it results in another request that's that's a one step higher. Or moving from room to room. It's kind of interesting. Different commentators, you know, in my lifetime, I think John Stott would have been one and and probably several that were living, liken it to this staircase. And it's very interesting because I think they're adapting probably an old sermon And I'm not sure who originally wrote that old sermon, but I know uh, Alexander McLaren likens it to this transformation, the staircase model, or moving from room to room. He's the earliest one I could find, and he's like in the uh, 1800s. Uh, And the theme has been picked up and carried on by different ones since then that there's some movement in the prayer. It's not just these individual, isolated, independent requests, but there's a continuity behind what Paul is praying. And it's a movement from where you are to where Paul desires the Gentile church to be. And so there's a, there is some sort of a progression. What exactly that looks like, it would be hard to say. Let's start with verse 15. Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You have this idea of naming. The first namer in scripture is God himself, who names Adam after he creates him. There was the man who was created in his own image and likeness. And God names him Adam. Uh, My image, you know, created in my likeness. But don't forget you're just dirt. I mean, you're just, you're still Adam. You're not God, you're still Adam. For the most part, people in Scripture uh, assign names to their own families. There were occasions in Scripture where God says, I'm going to name that one. Uh, God revealed through an angel to Zechariah that your your wife in her old age is going to have a child and you're going to name him John. And uh, because Zechariah was questioning whether this could actually take place. He was struck, uh, he couldn't speak. And uh, nine months later, when uh, the child was born, and they asked him sign language, like, what's his name? He wrote on a tablet, his name is John. And it surprised everybody because you don't have any Johns in your family. Like, why would you name your kid John? Because God said, you're going to name this child John. Mary and Joseph were told, that Mary would have a child, and you will name him Joshua. We would call it Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus. You know, I'm going to assign that name. But for the most part, we, we give our own names, but there's times in Scripture where that's not the case. Isaiah was told specifically what to name his child. I'm not going to try to attempt that name. It's a very long name. But there's a thing with naming in Scripture. Here, we have every family in heaven on earth is named from this father. So, one idea, what does this mean, is that every family, whether angelic or human, is named by God the Father. It's somewhat unclear what the relationship is. I can tell you in Greek, Paul is clearly making a word play between the word father and family. It really cannot be duplicated in English. If I already show you the two words in Greek, you would see a striking similarity. There's clearly a wordplay, but what Paul means by the wordplay is less clear. But one idea is that every family, every grouping on earth or in the heavens has been named by God. So what Paul is not saying is he's not advocating for universal salvation, that God is everyone's father, regardless of your belief, regardless of your religious tradition, regardless of your lifestyle. God, the universal fatherhood of God, where we will all wind up in paradise. Paul is not teaching that. What he is teaching is more like, along the lines of this, that this is father in the sense of he is creator or originator. Uh, Acts chapter 17 makes that point. Paul at Athens Colossians makes that point, turn over to Colossians, it's really just uh, two books over. So right after Ephesians is Philippians, right after Philippians is Colossians, and you have this idea of God being creator or originator of all that exists. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it reads, speaking of Jesus, of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's the father of all, the originator of all. He gives names and identities and places for all things that exist, things in heaven, things on earth. Things that are seen, things that are not seen. They are all placed there. They all find their identity and meaning and significance in how God created them. What name he gave them. A third point regarding this possibility is that Paul is emphasizing God's authority and sovereignty in naming. That is, the fact that he gets to name all those families is because God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. There's a certain power in assigning a name. Uh, I'm not good at names. Uh, That's another one of my not strong points. So, you know, I'm playing pickleball once or twice a week, and I'm meeting a lot of new people, and there's only a small handful that I actually know their names. I'm just not good at people's names. Uh, it takes me a while to get their names. And if I don't get it pretty soon, I'm going to get to the age where I'm losing more names than I'm gaining, uh, which is not going to be a good equation. But I do delight, my fact, delight myself in the fact that the few names that I do know, especially if I know they don't know my name, I kind of take a perverse delight in that. And I do that like in the neighborhood. You know, I've got a, one neighbor. He's a, a young guy that lives by himself most of the time. Uh, lives by himself, and and I know his name, and so I make a point of saying, "Hey, Sam, good to see ya." And I know he doesn't know my name, and I feel I feel this perverse power, like I know your name, and I know you don't know mine. But he's too embarrassed to ask, just like I'm too embarrassed to ask the people playing pickleball. I know I've met you three weeks in a row. What's your name again? I've got another neighbor across the street I do the same thing to, Brian and Holly. And I say that their names now because I want to keep them fresh. But I know they don't know my name. And I feel a certain power that I know those names. God has a certain authority and power in that he names all these things. And Isaiah is such a beautiful passage in this regard. It's chapter 40. It reads like this. To whom then will you compare me that I that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. And when the Lord says, lift up your eyes, he's saying, look at those stars. Look at the heavens. This is in a world where they have no artificial light. This is in a world where when it's night and there's no light of the moon, I can't imagine the stars they would see. So the Lord says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. The Lord is saying, how could you think I would not know you? Or not care about you when I've made promises, covenant promises, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding you. I'm the one who's named every, all the starry hosts, which suggests his power, his control, his authority. He knows them all by name. He certainly hasn't forgotten Jacob. So he goes on to finish. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The reason why a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can have hope, can have confidence, can have assurance, is because our God names everything that's in existence. He knows it all by name. He hasn't forgotten about his church. However small or however large or obscure it may seem to be, he knows us by name. A second possibility, because we're not sure what is meant, but a second possibility would say, however, the context of that statement in verse 15, the context favors limiting what Paul says, not to every family on heaven and earth, but to a single family, to just one family, that is the church family. So the, it's, in some sense, it's probably, probably that if, if you're translating the Greek text, the first position is probably better. But if you're looking at the greater context, I think the second possibility is actually the stronger argument. So the New King James translates verse 15 this way. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It doesn't matter whether it's believers who have already uh, fallen asleep, who've already died, whether they've rested in the grave. They're in heaven, but they're part of the same one family as those of us who are still living. The New International Version adds a little bit yet to that. It reads this way, From whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So it's not talking about God's authority over everything that He's created, but it's talking about His intimate authority over those that belong to the church. Those that belong to this one family, whether in heaven or on earth. There's a certain power and authority to what God is doing. This has been Paul's theme all along through Ephesians. We spent last time last week talking about all the together with. We've been raised together with Christ. We've been seated together with Christ. We're uh, now united with Jews in this together one thing called this body, called this church. It's all this togetherness. Jew, Gentile, both reconciled to God by Christ to the Father. All that togetherness, this this one theme, one church. Chapter 4, you're going to see the same thing. There's one church, one baptism, one Lord, one God, one church. And so Paul may be emphasizing that. Both choices are good. Both make true statements. Which one Paul actually means to say will have to wait. So the first request specifically is this. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened, which is the main idea, that we will be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. I think the word so really shouldn't be translated, there is no corresponding word in the Greek. Uh, Grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this idea of being strengthened comes by God's Spirit. God ministers chiefly to His church by His Spirit and by His Word. God's Spirit takes God's Word and He strengthens us. He strengthens you as a believer. He strengthens us as a church by His Spirit through His Word. So again, there's a connection. If I'm not in God's Word, God's Spirit is not in a position to strengthen me the way Paul is praying. God's Spirit uses God's Word to strengthen. It's according to his riches. Warren Wiersbe, uh, I don't have the dates when he passed away, it wasn't all that long ago. But Warren Wiersbe wrote a set of commentaries all in the New Testament. They're kind of devotional, they're not real heavy commentaries. He did a lot of the Old Testament. Every commentary Warren Wearsby wrote uh, was a B word. Be encouraged, be strengthened, be uh, comforted, be whatever. He would take a theme of the book. Well, for Ephesians, his commentary is entitled, Be Rich. Out of all the themes you might get out of Ephesians, when I don't know where he wrote this in sequence to all the others, like he was running out of ideas, or maybe it was early on, I don't know. But his title for Ephesians is Be Rich. Be strengthened with power, according to the riches of his glory. And I've made mention of it in times past, so I don't want to belabor the point, but it's according to his riches, not out of his riches. If I put a dollar in the offering plate, I've given out of what I have. But if I give according to what I have... It would be more than a dollar. God doesn't just strengthen us out of His riches. He gives us according to His riches. It's in keeping with all that He has. That's Paul's prayer. And it's a very strong prayer. He says that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now, in chapter 4, we're going to talk about the new being, the new man, the new self... The new man, or the new self, is not the same as your inner self, your inner being. Now, I'm going to have to save this for chapter 4, because we don't have that much time. But briefly, it would one way to describe it would look like this out of Corinthians. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the inner self is the the part of you that doesn't die when your body is laid in the grave. The outer self is wasting away. The inner self, who you are on the inside that you can't see, your personality, I'll assign certain components to it, that is being renewed and transformed every day, strengthened by God's Spirit according to His riches. Uh, Another way to look at it would be this from uh, technical commentary, Zondervan exegetical commentary. The relationship between the inner self... And the new self, which is in chapter 4, is best understood by seeing the inner self strengthened so that it more closely approximates the new self. If you think this is hard, just be glad we're not in Romans 7. But we'll talk about that more in in a little bit better detail when we get to chapter 4 next year. The inner self has to do with your mind, your conscience, and your will. Paul is praying that our minds would be flooded with what God says is true. And we would stop thinking according to our own estimation of things. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened in our conscience to make right valuations as to what is valuable, what should be pursued, what counts more than other things that that pale by comparison, that our conscience would be moved, not dulled, by the ways of the world, but our consciences would be sharpened to pursue that which is best in a given situation. Paul is praying that our will and resolve would be strengthened so that we follow Christ in whatever path of obedience He has for us. And my path of obedience will look somewhat different from your path of obedience. In some ways, they're all the same. We're called to Scripture. We're called to prayer. We're called to live out our faith in meaningful ways. But in some sense, those paths of obedience differ a little bit. God doesn't have every Christian walk the same path of obedience. But he will call you to walk a path. And you do need resolve to follow that path in obedience to his commandments. And I see I am out of time. I thought I would get just a little bit further. So I'm going to break it off here. What are your comments and questions? Lori? Good question. So, what is the relationship between being strengthened through the Spirit and God's Word? That is, that is not just a thing for the for the first century. It's for us. The prayer still for Christ's Church is that we would be in, our minds would be illuminated according to Scripture. What God, that they that we would because there's people that can read Scripture. They may know Scripture in some sense better than I do. They can quote Scripture. They've memorized entire books of Scripture and they're dead as a doornail. So, I think there's an ongoing prayer or or facet in the Bible that teaches our minds constantly need to be enlightened and illumined to why God put it there and what it actually means. The the like the the they have the first scriptures. You've still got... To whatever access they have, they've got all the, all the first testament of scriptures. Which, if they're Gentile churches and very far removed, it's, it's going to be largely dependent on what the Jews know about those scriptures, because they probably don't have those scriptures. But... I mean, what you're, the, the path you're going down is a fascinating path. And, and it would require a whole message to adequately answer it. But that would be what it boils down to is because they are now laboring, the Ephesian church is laboring or, or existing under the terms of the new covenant. The new covenant that was, that was begun by Christ's death on a cross, which ended the Mosaic Law Covenant by this new covenant that they are now walking into, the Scriptures have not fleshed that out. The New Testament Scriptures, they haven't been written. That was, the, that was the reason why apostles and prophets were given to the church, so that they could, by divine inspiration, express what that means for the church, for Gentiles in particular. And as Scripture was completed, the need for prophets to receive divine revelation from God to speak an inspired message also died out and it no longer became necessary because now we've got God's Word. And I think that can be demonstrated from 1 Corinthians 13, but I've got good people that would disagree. But that, I would contend that. So, so their understanding of being strengthened would come through Old Testament Scriptures to the degree they have them, and what the apostles and teachers and prophets taught until New Testament Scriptures were written. That's the short answer. Cindy? I think you can pray for those things, but I think if that's all I pray for is what I want and I'm never identifying what God has done or what God has said or what God has promised to do, then I'm, I'm not, my prayer isn't, it's not a healthy prayer. It's not a healthy prayer. I don't think it's wrong to pray for things that are on the prayer sheet, but if that's all I pray for is God, is like Santa Claus, here's, here's this week's wish list of what we want, not wrong to pray for those things uh is Vicky still here or is she she's in the nursery I mean she she came up she read something which I always thought was kind of helpful uh, when she goes through like a prayer she she would say god she, her prayer would be god make it count make it count you know whatever your will is make it count uh, make it make it demonstrate your grace in the situation whether that's a miraculous healing, transformation, it's exactly what we're hoping for, or whether you give them grace for the day, uh, make it count. So, it's both and, I see, Terry? Right. The things that I absolutely know God will grant are the things that he's already said he was going to do. Daniel didn't have to pray, well, God, I sure hope you'd bring us out of captivity in Babylon. He'd already said he was going to. And so he's praying to that end. He knows that the answer to that request is yes. And it's right on time. We can pray that Christ, we're celebrating His first advent, His first coming. It's also the hope candle. We're, We're anticipating His second coming. And we should be praying to that end. The reason why He hasn't come back yet is because the church still has a job to do the church still has a job to do. Uh, Henry? yeah, It's more about that. Prayer is more about finding myself aligning with God's will than God somehow changing His eternal purposes to suit my will. So prayer is a way for me to align myself with God, not the other way around. Uh, There's so many good quotes that flesh out a lot of these things. I mean, God knows we're children of dust, right? So there's times David's praying, he's he's lamenting. I don't think he's standing. I think he's down on his face and he's pouring out his heart. And God, why are you so far from me? Like I don't think I think we can be honest with God. All right, I'm not saying we need to be very pious and put on this wonderful show that we know God's got it all in control, which He does. But that doesn't mean there aren't times you you get on your knees or you get on your face and, and you you cry out in despair and like, God, you seem so far away right now. I think that's part of prayer too. I think it encompasses all of that. World, I'll get to, World Magazine, the podcast a couple weeks ago, Wendy Williams, I think her name is, she does every Monday. She has a little snippet on there. I could play that three-minute clip for you and I would be tempted to do it, except I would be so in trouble because you would all be crying. (laughs) It is so heart-wrenching, but it is so true. Uh, I listen to it three or four times and every time I listen to it I'm like wiping tears away, like oh my goodness, but it's honest genuine prayer. And she captures very nicely what does it mean that we go to God in prayer and yet God in His wisdom and His power always does what is best she wrestles through that in a little personal story that is so powerful. Rod. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's a wonderful way to introduce a lot of prayers, right? To work through. I mean Galatians, well, Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians are the basis of a lot of really good prayers, which that book that's free on the back foyer counter. It's there so that you will learn to pray exactly what is in scripture. And it's so much more meaningful. It's a good time of year to do it because if you make New Year's resolutions and you're like, one of the things I'd like to work on is prayer, that would be a great book you could read easily in, in the month of December and you're good to go in January. Let's stand and be dismissed.